Welcome, everyone, to the next episode of the Amplifier Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to talk to this entrepreneur and wonderful lady, Shelby Scarborough. She's the founder of the uh, company Practical Protocol. Now, Shelby has such an incredible and interesting and intriguing journey of how she developed her career. She started her career and her entrepreneurial journey as a teenager when her parents became franchisee uh, operators and builders of the Burger King franchise, and that was her first job. After college, Shelby was presented with an opportunity to become part of some of modern history's most iconic uh, political uh, um, political uh, leaders in the form of Ronald Reagan, the Berlin Wall, and Mikhail Gorbachev. After working with the Reagan administration, Shelby joined the State Department and was focused on the Office of Protocol and really learning and having to interact with many international dignitaries and interacting and understanding their multiple cultures. In 1990, she started her business practical protocol and with some of her first clients, her first client was a modern uh, history icon that most people will recognize, Nelson Mandela, and her second client was Pope John Paul II. The school that my daughter goes to today is named after Pope John Paul II. Shelby has a passion for helping entrepreneurs leverage civility and protocol to enhance their relationships. Her first book, Civility Rules, are based on the rules of civility and showing us how George Washington's rules of civility can apply to us in living our lives. Her newest book is called The Joy, uh, the Joy Journey, and I'm interested to learn more about that. Uh, and her newest venture that I'm also excited to share with our listeners is a new way for entrepreneurs to think about getting an MBA with her, her global school of entrepreneurship. Everyone, please welcome Shelby to the Amplifier Podcast. Shelby, I'm super excited to talk to you about all of these things and share with our listeners your really unique journey. My goodness, thank you so much. It's really a nice introduction. It's it's a little embarrassing to hear to hear it because I'm just a I'm just your average Joe working their way through life. But I've had some really interesting opportunities, and um, I'm very grateful to have had them. And um, I know that it is fun to share some of those moments with people who have an interest in, in, in those kind of iconic people, because uh, not very many people do get an opportunity to kind of hang out with heads of state and stuff like that. So it's been a very little bit of a rarefied atmosphere, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here and happy to tell you anything you want to know. Yeah. I mean, you know, as I was sort of getting ready for our show, I was just super intrigued by the, the journey and, um, and it's likely that, you know, you couldn't plan this stuff. It's not like you had a career path plan when you were, you know, 16 or 17 that said, I'm going to, I'm going to work with these people. Um, let's talk about your journey that starts off with um, working in a family business. Yeah, my parents decided, my dad had been a stockbroker doing really well on a great trajectory with Dean Witter. And uh, for all uh, for all we know, I mean, he, he could have ended up running the place. Who knows? I mean, he was on a really, really good trajectory. But I think that he and my mother decided that, you know, um, as he said, that their entire net worth, you know, walked around in their pocket right then. They Because if they stopped, he stopped working, there was no residual income. It was just a, you know, 
everyday things. So they wanted to um, establish a business that that could have residual income that was making money in theory if they weren't making ha every hamburger uh, and to train other people to do it and um, and grow from there. And so so we got involved, all three of my, my, we're all three kids, three girls, I'm the oldest. So I was about 14 when we started it, 15 by the time we opened. And um, my very first job was working in our first Burger King restaurant in Danville, California. And so my sisters did the same thing, even younger than, than I did. They sweep, swept the floors. We all slept on the benches as my parents were opening a restaurant and late at night we'd be there. So we would be sleeping in the booths, you know, waiting for our parents to take us home. But it, so it, it just sort of seeps into your skin as far as what it takes to run a business. And it's not, it's, it's not always glamorous. It's not always pretty, but um, you know, it's, I, the journey of an entrepreneur in particular, you have to have the right mentality and the right attitude. And so I think I have a little bit of DNA in there from my parents and a, and a little bit of uh, experience from them as well. And that made up, that has done a lot to make up sort of how I look at the world and approach um, just about everything I do. I mean, it's your, you know, when you think about, you know, flipping burgers and whatever the, whatever the franchisee is for for most of the last 40 or 50 plus, maybe 60 years, uh, that's kind of like the iconic teenage first job, isn't it? It is. And in fact, McDonald's, who is always, you know, we were Burger King and I love Burger King as a product. Um, I have always admired uh, McDonald's marketing and they've done a great job through the years of appealing to the different target markets that they want to reach. One of them that just came out with again was America's best first job. And I thought, you know, good for them. That's what we've always felt that the industry was built on was a, a great first job for people because it taught you how to show up on time, you know, keep your space neat, keep your clothes neat, your presentation um, well done for an outward phasing world, that kind of thing. <coughs> Excuse me. But it's evolved into full-time jobs for people. And so it's kind of gotten a bad rap for being not a good job. And that's not true. We raised our, we raised almost all of our managers. And I give, I say, we, we did in our own business and that I had in Virginia, but my parents' restaurants, um, they have people that were with them for 20, 30, and almost 40 years. And so it's not because they didn't have anywhere else to go. It's because it was a good career path. And we have all different kinds of people in this world who need all different kinds of jobs filled. So I've always been a little put off by putting down the, the burger industry as a, as a place to work because there's a lot of really good, good opportunities that have come out of it for a lot of people, including scholarships to college and things like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, compared to what, right? I mean, is what people should ask is it's not a, it's not a, it's not, it is or it isn't a great job compared to what? Yeah. And compared to what opportunities people have and don't have. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I know many people who have gone the, the track of being managers or supervisors in those sorts of businesses and have, you know, happy, healthy, successful lives. You know, but if you're comparing someone who it's an entry level job on the cash register, if that's going to be your full time job. Yeah, I mean, some of those activities by the nature of uh, check writers are going to be lower paying jobs because, you know, if if we if we want it, um, some of those, you know, the entry level service jobs to be six figure salaries, then we'd be willing to pay twelve dollars for a hamburger. Yeah, it's, get, it's <laughs> right? getting there. Yeah, you think it, it is, it is getting there. But, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, uh, 
everything we sell and everything we do in business is 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 derived by what people are willing to pay for it and you've got to make the business work and so yep. you know if you want a career in that space then you you also need to and one of my one of my core values in my businesses is always be growing so if you start off an entry level and i love giving people in my businesses entry level jobs and then watching them grow into leadership and finding their own feet and i think that's the that's the opportunity that those businesses give people who choose the career path option. So, but I, but I love the, the simple lessons that that first job teaches, right? Like show up on time. Yeah, what a concept. Be, be presentable to the world because, you know, you know, you might be a 15 year old kid who's on the cash register, but you're the face of the company in front of the customer. That's right. And so learning to be there on time, be reliable, be dependable, be presentable, are our, our basic foundational life skills for wherever you take your life. And if you don't learn those early, they, they become real problematic when you uh, have other jobs where people are not going to tolerate if you don't show up on time. Things like anticipation, that's a huge quality for an entrepreneur and, and just about and a good employee in a company is anticipating what comes next. So just the simple lesson of when you're standing at what we would call the boards, because we have a broiler and the hamburger comes off. And so the board's making the hamburgers. If there's nothing going on right at that second, I mean, leaning on the counter, I, we were taught, you know, you don't need to lean, right? Always be moving. You say always be growing. We will always be moving. So yeah. if there's not your job right there in front of you, to do there's something else that needs to be done help somebody else do something restock look for the opportunities to fill the gaps and don't wait to be told and those are the show the initiative anticipation those are great incredible skills that make a a new person entry-level job person really valuable in their next job and that increases their opportunities exponentially just by that simple lesson oh so important I mean, my other business is we're an industrial engineering repair contractor and we work in all sorts of industrial facilities with specialized technicians. And I was just talking with my operations leader um, in a planning meeting on Monday. He says, you know, one of the things, and we were talking about a particular client, he says, one of the things that that particular client really values is that if our guys are, you know, the tasks for our people are not ready, that they don't sit and wait. That they, that they are reaching out to the client saying, what can I do while I'm waiting to be valuable? Exactly. And just that little bit changes the relationship with the client where the client is not no longer evaluating your, your business's performance based on just what you did, but on what you were willing to do to be part of a contributing team. Yes. And I think that lesson starts off like right you know, early in, in, those, in those adolescent years. And I, uh, looking at your logo and your title, you know, the amplifier effect and the reverberations. I mean, to me, that's just a really visible visual symbol uh, to realize that that's what you're doing um, by in, in, in that job and having pride in that job. You can amplify your impact for yourself and your employer just by showing initiative. Yeah. Amplify your performance, amplify your impact, amplify, you know, how the, the, the value that you're creating in anything. And that, you don't have to be an entrepreneur to be an amplifier, right. right? You simply need to decide that you're not going to be running with the middle distance players. <laughs> right. right. You stand apart by doing And that. You know, in my career, um, that's how I grew. And I spent, I spent half of my career in what I have, you know, in retrospect, I was an entrepreneur in corporate 
in the corporate world. I, I, I did great you know, in startup offices and really changing and, and, and innovating things. And then when the corporate bureaucracy hit me, that drove me crazy. And I did that for about 15 years until I realized, you know, that was great learning ground, but I was an entrepreneur and I needed to do things differently. And, um, and, and so being different, not being part of the, of the pack in any career, it doesn't matter if you choose to be an entrepreneur or you just want to have a, you know, a successful life, you need to put in a little more effort so that you, you know, add value and, and, and when and generally those people get recognized. Yes, absolutely. Now you went to college after Burger <laughs> King and you got out of college and you know, you, you got to meet this, you know, just, just a common actor from California um, by the name of Ronnie Reagan. That's right. Tell me about that. That to me, that's like, I grew up thinking, you know, Ronald Reagan was an icon of leadership in the Western world. You know, he wasn't just an American president. You know, he was, you know, you know, there was lots of things going on, but he was, you know, known for ending the Cold War in some ways and, you know, and, and creating peace treaties and, you know, tearing down, in some ways, tearing down the Iron Curtain simply because of his ability to build relationships with people and not letting a barrier create, you know, continue on you know 50 years of they're my enemy and i don't talk to them yeah how did you how did you get involved with the reagan administration like tell me that journey so uh i think it goes back to our original just a second ago discussion was initiative and there was my father calls uh it's not his quote but he used to say it all the time that luck is the place where preparation and opportunity meet so you may have heard that phrase before it's very prominent in my mental in my, in my little brain here it sticks a lot and i i knew that at 16 because of what he would say and so i there was an opportunity to volunteer for the political convention in dallas um where they the nominating convention and it was the renomination of ronald reagan as a um as for his second term so I, he'd already been president for four years at that point or almost four years. So I was, um, I went and I painted signs. I was a youth volunteer. I just did whatever needed to be done. But one of the things I think that stands out to me is I always say I did it and I didn't like salami sandwiches. And, um, and so it's I, I, everything I credit to the fact that I actually don't like salami, but it was because I, <laughs> because I really didn't, these sandwiches came for all these youth volunteers and they were all stacked on top of each other and they were slimy and gross and disgusting so I thought you know I don't want I it feels funny just to sit here and not eat because I really didn't couldn't think of eating it and so I walked around the other side of the table where they were handing them out and started handing them out with the staff that was there so what really it was just sort of a stepping stone it was an innocent act in some ways but looking back it was a really pivotal moment because I literally pivoted from one side of the equation to the other and got to know the people who were making decisions and then when the opportunities came to be a part of different aspects of the campaign they called me so I it just was really and I just kept saying yes you know put me to work and I wasn't that picky about what it was but people were looking out for me making sure that I was getting a good experience and by the time he was re-elected I was asked to come back and work on the inaugural committee in Washington DC and sort of the rest is history after eight weeks I was offered a job in the White House and I never left and I lived there for, for most of my adult life until 10 years ago in Washington in, in various roles yes um how old were you when you started working in the White House I was I think I was 22 wow 
So yes, I was making all the major decisions. I was in you know, <laughs> peace. Yeah, we, we, we can thank nuclear disarmament to Shelby. 100%. <laughs> I worked in the presidential advance office, which is the, the, I think is one of the most fun places to work in the White House because you interact with everybody, all the senior staff, you travel, you get to meet heads of state, you get to meet all different cultures, work within all different cultures. And it's very fast moving. I mean, it is, I would, looking in my, through my entrepreneurial lens, it's probably one of the most entrepreneurial um, offices in the White House. And the White House is one of the most entrepreneurial um, engines in the government. Uh, if there is an entrepreneurial engine in the government, that it would be the White House because it's it's based on visionary thinking. It's based on looking ahead and anticipation, thinking up creative problem solving, that kind of thing, rather than um, executing plans, if that makes sense, um, yeah. from, from a, a visionary standpoint. It's very fast-paced. And so you, you said you traveled around the world and met heads of state. Tell me about a couple of really cool stories that, uh, that you had during those times. You know, I just, um, I you know, I have one that, I, I don't know why it came in my head this time, but, well, Ronald Reagan loved... Um, really liked Lech Walesa of Poland. And he used to have a candle in the window of the White House in solidarity. It was the symbol of solidarity in Poland. And so he put one in the White, in the White House window uh, during solidarity. So this was a long time ago, this is the anti-communist movement in, um, in Poland. And, uh, you know, we forget um, now, we're already almost two generations away from those moments. And we forget what grip communism had on this world. And I remember my grandfather, who was, uh, we talked a little bit, but he was a pioneer aviator who was very anti-communist. And he sounded kind of extreme as, oh, grandpa, you know, we're living in peace, peaceful times, et cetera. But, you know, coming now two generations, three generations away from that, I'm getting that Ronald Reagan had a very special way of, of communicating the threat of um of, on democracy that that communism held, and it is still, to me, to sound a little extreme, it's 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 very alive today. Uh, unfortunately, the threat is very alive, and it's just a little more insidious, and it's not as much so much based on nuclear bombs facing each other. Although there's plenty of that, but it's not that kind of cold war anymore. It's it's a colder war, and it's more insidious war. So yeah, I mean, I, I think the, I think the communist, you know, the communist threat to the world today is fueled by, you know, they have latched on to capitalism to fuel their belief system, right? So, you you know, particularly China, uh, but equally um, maybe less, less communistic and more totalitarian in Russia, but they're latching on to, you know, you know, the open markets to move fuel, to build everything from from iPhones to computer chips to advancing artificial intelligence and they have major economies now that can fuel their ideology and they are doing it on our dime. Yeah, it's a very complicated world. It's very mm -hmm. multi so Ronald Reagan had a, a clarity of thought around that and it was almost maybe it was a simpler time in that sense but uh, it was uh, it was he knew what was right and wrong from his perspective and he followed that he knew that it was right to support Lech Walesa and so i had the opportunity to work with both of them and see them both so after president reagan was out of office he went to um, poland for the first time and i was asked to be the lead on that event in poland in warsaw so i get to go and be involved in a society 
this was still when Lech Walesa was in the shipyards in Gdansk. He wasn't president of Poland, but he announced his presidency for Poland while Ronald Reagan was there. So to see the two worlds converge like that was really kind of amazing. And to see the fact that Lech Walesa became the president of Poland, who had been a shipyard worker, you know, union leader, shipyard worker in Gdansk, Poland, and now was the leader of a newly democratic Poland. Um, and one of my favorite memories was literally running around in the Belvedere, you know, the vodka Belvedere, mm -hmm. that's the White House of Poland. The Belvedere is the end Polish, it's Polish vodka. So when that came out, I was like, hey, I've been in that building. We were in the Belvedere when it was when he first took over as president. And literally, I, I was like, does anybody else work here except the president and the three people that we were dealing with? Because it was like they moved into an empty house and there was nobody else there. I mean, it was just such a strange feeling. I felt like I was just kind of had the free run of the place. And they were literally setting up democracy as we were in this building. So just the the reverberations of the ghosts, you know, of communism in the halls versus democracy and it was just, I look back on it and I think, gosh, how lucky was I to be kind of sitting there in the middle of all that, just doing my job, you know, trying to help every, my job was to help other people get their job done. It's amazing how when you don't experience it or you don't have some sort of tangible way to rationalize it, it's just something that happened on the news. Yes. Um, you know, in my industrial life, uh, we've done work in, um, in Aruba and there, 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 there's a series of, uh, there's a big refinery there. I don't even know, it's been a lot of years, but one of the first times I was there, my team were removing old equipment and they were trying to refurbish this refinery and they were taking valves out and some of the valves had swastikas on them mm. because they, the refinery was built during, uh, before World War II with uh, Nazi Germany manufactured products. Oh, amazing. And the minute that you you see that and touch that, it makes that way more real than watching a history documentary about yes. what happened 70 years ago because, wow, this, like, this was real, right? And when you touch that and you see mm -hmm. it or you experience it, it, it makes it that much differently. Now, sure. a really big physical symbol of of the Cold War was the Berlin Wall. Mm -hmm. And it came down. Now, Reagan, um, you know, there's a news clip that a media clip that will be shown for forever, where he talked about that. Can you tell me about where you were and what he said? Sure, sure. I had been in uh, this, this speech happened right after the economic summit for all of the um, I think it was the G7 at the time or something, but the, um, so it was Japan and Germany and UK and um, the US, et cetera, and Italy. And so we were in, Italy was hosting it. So we were in Venice and my, we had a team in, uh, in Berlin setting up this event, this, because after the Venice summit, the president was going to Berlin. So my boss at the time, a guy named Jim Hooley uh, said, you know, why don't, put me on the, what we call the backup plane. It would look just like Air Force One. It flew, you know, right with it. And, and um, we went to Berlin, landed in Tempelhof Airport, which I was able to tell everybody that we would drop because you go, you the Tempelhof Airport really isn't used much anymore, but you fly over the buildings of Berlin and then you have to drop. It's not a, a descent like this, but I knew that because my grandfather made the first New York to Berlin flight. And he told me when I was flying into Berlin that 
pay attention to this because you're going to notice that that's how you're going to land. Your stomach kind of drops out. So even from the very beginning, I kind of had this anticipation of what that Berlin would be kind of a, a, a you know, a stomach dropping experience, if that's the right way to put it. But um, so I had just, I was sort of a great tag along. I got there, we went in the motorcade, the president went off to see the mayor of Berlin in a small meeting. And then part of the motorcade peeled off. We went to Tempelhof airport and watched, uh, watched him give a speech there. And then we went off to the Berlin wall in anticipation where my colleagues who had been setting up this event had brought worst in beer off to the, off to the right of the stage for us the traveling delegation. And there was a, a tower there, like a walk-up tower that was, you know, two stories high kind of thing. And so we could walk up to the top of that and look over into East Berlin, over the wall, into where Brandenburg Gate was inside East Berlin and see that there was nobody there. And then you turned around and looked into West Berlin and it was just millions of people, uh, you know, lining the streets it looked a lot like it did when John Kennedy was there. And so the distinction, the, the, the on-off switch was just, I mean, it was amazing. It, you just, it was, it gave you chills just to look at it. And then we came back down off of that vantage point. The president came and he went up and looked over it with his, the chief of staff. And he made the comment, I've had the conversation with our, the former chief of staff, Ken Duberstein, that he made the comment to him of this is the only wall that's ever been built to keep people in, uh, in it for a country, you know, besides a prison, right? So, um, and so, he came back down and gave this iconic speech, which we knew was probably going to have a dramatic impact on the world, partly because of the internal struggle that um, was going on between the speechwriters, the Secretary of State, the diplomats, and the West Wing, and the President himself. And they kept taking this line out of the speech that said, tear down this wall, and the President kept putting it back in. So he, you know, just like I said before, he had a lot of clarity on who he was, what he was. And I have talked about in the past um, in a TED talk and other places that the relationship that they had developed, that Reagan and Gorbachev had developed by that point, I believe made it a safe bet to, to say what he said, because he didn't say it in a, he, it was a challenge, but he, he did it. He, he implored, he, he, it was almost as if he put himself on the same side of the table with Mr. Gorbachev and said, if you value freedom as you say you do, then take, tear down this symbolism of oppression, tear down this wall. It wasn't like, you better tear it down or I'm coming to get you. You know, there was a big difference in the way. It was a definitely a bold statement. And the diplomats, who I appreciate diplomacy a lot, um, they wanted to water it down. And he just knew, he had the, I think he just had that instinct to know that that was going to be the right thing to say at the right time. And sure enough, it became an iconic moment. And here we were listening to it going, okay, here it comes. <laughs> He's gonna say it now. And we're drinking beer and eating bratwurst just off stage. Um, just if you're- 20, 30, look 40 at that, feet away from him. 40 feet away. If you're looking at the yeah. picture, we're just out of the picture. And my boss used to say, if you're in the picture as an advanced person, if you're in the picture, you're in the wrong place. So right. I feel like Forrest Gump a lot, except only I'm outside of the picture. I'm just outside of the screen. This is me out here usually. And then my colleagues, we would always be not in the picture very much. Yeah, but, you know, based on that context and understanding what, what Reagan had done with relationship building with, with Gorbachev, um, you know, I, it was less of a threatening a rival as, it, as rather than challenging a friend to move faster in the direction that he felt that they were going. Right. I, that's how, I, that's how I look at it. I think that's how 
history looks at it when you get deep into it, but it's also, it was, it was provocative, but it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't a threat. And we are, I think that, you know, when we talk about the things and the things that I write about, about civility and these kinds of things are, we need to learn how to communicate with each other. And whether it's, you know, across town, across the company, across the countries, across borders, um, the, anything that sets up a paradigm where there's a non sequitur, where there's no answer to the question that somebody poses, you know, then, then, then there's no, it doesn't go anywhere. And so, but I also am a peace through strength kind of girl. And I think that the, you, you know, we had strength. We can't, he believed in peace through strength. He felt that there was a lot of, um, uh, ways to prevent other people from making bad decisions if they knew that the, the consequence was going to be worse. <laughs> so um, by being, by having the, the holding the card of strength is not a bad strategy either. Just not using it, right? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, obviously you have spent your career with civility and protocol as tools for relationship and how that can enhance lives and relationships. And I, I, I can't help but think that, you know, in that particular situation with, with, with Reagan and, and, and Gorbachev, like some of the first times that they were to meet in summits where you would have a traditional standoff on either side of the table, that's not where Reagan started with Gorbachev, is it? Uh, no, I mean, they, they got to know each other in an intimate setting. Um, but, you know, if you look at some of the pictures you see that where they, uh, there's something called rapport. So that um, when people are in rapport, you can see it because they face each other. And if you're into things like neuro-linguistic programming and NLP and all that, you can actually, people can use that that skill for good or evil. So if you want to de-escalate something or if you want to escalate a, a discussion, you can control that by how you interact with the person in front of you. And so when you see them in some pictures, you can tell when they're, in rapport and when they're not. And they had a moment, you know, that that it was like, okay, well, we've just got to walk away right now because we're not getting anywhere. And where they weren't in rapport, but they were, we were willing to keep talking. And so when you look at some of the pictures throughout the different meetings, the Reykjavik meetings, Geneva meeting, Moscow, and then and then DC, that you you find that there's um the most of the times that they're in great rapport. And I think one of the biggest symbols of that was when um, I had the honor of working on President Reagan's funeral in Washington, DC as one of the top couple of people working on the program. And um, he, you know, when President, Gor when Mr. Gorbachev came to the funeral and came into the rotunda to pay respects to his fallen colleague, he, it was, I, I mean, what better way is there to emphasize and put the exclamation point on that, that you, enemies are, are, you know, it's, it's up to, it's up to us and, and that we don't have to be. And the fact that they, I think that Gorbachev in a way gave up his, he collapsed the Soviet Union in a lot of ways. And he was the beginning of the collapse of the Soviet Union, and he is not necessarily hailed as a hero in the Soviet Union. So mm -hmm. I give him a lot of credit for being very brave to do something that was not necessarily popular. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it isn't well known, but, you know, after some of the things he did to tear down the wall and to bridge, you know, bridge the East and the West, you know, in some, he was, you know, there was a bit of a silent coup removing him because of some of the 
um, the, the, the communist sort of hardliners. You know, he was under house arrest and sort of got sidelined, but he had already made such a big impact and exposed the weaknesses economically and socially of the Soviet Union that there was a momentum built that kept it going in a lot of ways. But, you know, he, yeah, he definitely wasn't celebrated, you know, the way that we celebrate him in the West, I think. But yeah. I remember hearing you talking about, you know, one of one of the things that Reagan would do to build rapport before they got at the table with any rival or any negotiation was that rapport building started by him. Let's take a walk. Let's take a walk. Yeah, they walked. Yeah. They walked outside and by just themselves, and that was that caused a lot of consternation with staff. Um, just an interpreter, and and uh, you know because everybody wants to be there to make sure they're taking the notes and. They've all got a job to do, which I totally respect. But this, so this was a little, there was a little bit of pushback, but let's just, let's just call me Ron, you know, I mean, call me, he, he, he didn't say call me Mr. President or anything like that, or President Reagan. He said, call me Ron. And, and it seems so simple and so like not world events, you know, important, but the, he, I think that there was an intention to to make, to humanize one another and to show that we're just two guys trying to, trying to have a conversation. And that went a long way um, to when they did have difficult conversations to be able to come back to the table. Right. So you've got this, you know, these experience with him developing rapport and showing respect with a rival. You have a similar story, uh, less rivalrous with Reagan at an elevator. Can you tell me a little oh. bit about that? In fact, I'm looking at a draft of an article that's going to be in Forbes next week that I'm I'm editing my draft right now. It's called After You. So I call it my After You story because he was just a very kind person in general and very respectful to everyone, um, concerned about everyone's well-being as much as he possibly could be. And um, so when we we would get to an elevator. My, I mean, my simple little interactions with him would be walking through the, a building and getting into an elevator. And my job was to lead him. And then the elevator would open. You want, as the advanced person, you want to be in advance. You want to be ahead. So when you're the first person in an elevator, you're usually the last person out, right? It's right. so a little uh, accounting term, LIFO, FIFO, whatever, <laughs> last in, first out. It's So I wanted to be last, the, the last in, the first out. And he wouldn't, let me. So it's after you. And I'd say, I'd say after you, Mr. President, he'd say, oh no, after you. And I'm like, no, you. And so pretty soon I make the joke that pretty soon Secret Service would just sort of say, just get in the elevator, let's keep going. And then I'd have to kind of squish around and to get out front again so that, you know, cause I was taking him where we were supposed to be going. Right. So a simple little, little, little thing, but it's just memorable with him. It's so cute. And I have my my colleague, Joanne Drake, who's the chief administrative officer at the Reagan Library, um, basically, we both have, she has the same experience with him. And she's, she spent many, many years of her life devoted to he and his family and his legacy as she went back with him after the White House years and has been, you know, in charge of the Reagan legacy ever since, essentially. So um, she has that same experience with him. So we like to to regale that a little bit and what a kind man he was he was very kind if somebody he saw somebody one time she tells a story about he was doing a photo op out on the um south lawn with a whole group of people from gosh i'm trying to think it was like sports team or something like that but one person kind of got jumbled up you know um rustled around and and 
And he thought the Secret Service did it. He, it the president thought that maybe somebody kind of pushed him out of the way, um, you know, when the president came through. And so he, he had, um, I think it was Joanne, the same person, go out and try to find the person who got jostled. And it took a bit and she went and found that person and brought him back to the Oval Office where he apologized. And the, and the, and he said, oh, it was the Olympians. It was Olympians because I'm, the Olympian, I can't remember who it was, but there's pictures of it, took his, his gold medal and put it on the president. And so uh, and there's awesome. a photo of that. And that was because he, he thought that person had been like something had gone wrong and he hasn't treated. So out of the corner of his eye, he's taking note to make sure that people are treated with dignity and respect, mm -hmm. which is a core foundation to a civilized practice, you know, something to be, to being a good person in this world is, is to care about others.